me ask you to go to Mark chapter 15. We're starting a, a new series today. It's four weeks till Easter, and we'll have a brief series that will take us to the cross of Jesus. And we'll be spending some time in this chapter, Mark chapter 15. Today we're going to look at verses 16 through 32 in a message entitled, Jesus is Mocked. Jesus is Mocked. It's not an easy passage to read, to think about, and to envision the events that occurred. It is difficult and painful stuff, but it's important. It comes to the heart of what we believe as Christians. Let's go to the passage to now. Mark chapter 15, verse 16 through 32. This is the word of God. And the soldiers led him, that is Jesus, away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. It's a painful and difficult passage. But um, let's pray. I preach on it. Lord, what I talk about today is hard. It is not an easy thing to hear nor to wrestle with. But I pray that I would preach from your scriptures faithfully and it would not be what I say, but it would be faithful to what you have to say to us. Would you be present? Would you be front and center? Would you be in the downtown, the core of our life, Lord. And you would cause us to call, you would call us to you. We would see you. We would see what this means that you were mocked, Lord. What does this say about you? What does this say about us? 
And we respond to your gospel. Respond to you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. It's not an easy passage, is it? You know, you read this passage. If you have grown up in the church, these are familiar stories. You have heard these things again and again. You, you know that there's a, a, a thorn put on his head. And you know that he gets whipped and he bleeds. You know this thing that, that people make fun of him. They spit on him. He's humiliated. I mean, these are not easy things. But I raise this up for you. As we take you know, this journey over these next four weeks to the death and resurrection of Jesus... I want you to not just know this thing like as an old story, a dead and easy story, because after it becomes too familiar, I want you to feel this thing, how hard it is, how horrible, how wretched, and it's just, it is horrifying, not just horrible. And to feel this, this horror of this thing. And, and I want to talk specifically about this, how this passage talks about that Jesus wasn't just tortured. Jesus did not just endure all the pain and the suffering of the execution itself, but that he was mocked, that he's humiliated, that the way the people responded to him was something awful, that there was a hatred, that there was a rejection, that's, that, that he who is God himself, this is God. The Bible teaches us that this person is none other than Almighty God. He flung stars in his face. By a word, he invented elephants and jungles and oceans and science, that which we call science. He invented it. And so that all these things, as we chase all this knowledge in the world, these are just things that just God just said, I think I'll make this. I'll come up with music. We may have come up with rock and roll or classical music or jazz, but God invented music itself, right? This is Almighty God. And He came into this history. He was born, and He was lived, and He was laid in a manger, and He came. He says, this is who I am. You can touch me, hear me, eat with me, walk with me. Here I am. This is God. And when God comes into this world, into this history, this is how He's treated. This is what human beings do to Him. This is the reaction. Now, when I read the Bible, I do not think that the Bible is just telling us about something that happened in the past, that it's something that happens in history. The Bible here, this is saying, you know, what we see is we see Romans. We see the Jews, not only just the Jews, we are talking about the, the very elites. The Jews are the people who have the Bible. They have the promises of God. They have had the acts of God. They're the ones who are supposed to be holy people, a godly people. And yet you get, you have the Romans, and the Romans are secular. That, I think that's the way I'd like to present them. I'm not sure if they would have called themselves as secular. But today, in this post-Christian time, they, they did exactly the kinds of things we do today. They look at all the different religions. They're like, oh, I like your religion. I'm like, I have respect for your religion. But the thing that they will not do is they will not let one group say, your God is the God. They despise that teaching. That, and if you can read ancient literature, what, what was said among 
you know, uh, among the intellectuals of that time, they would talk about this Jewish faith, this Jewish religion, this stuff about the Bible, and they would talk about this, and they would call it a superstition, something that's not even worthy of knowledge or of study. It's stupid. It's to be dismissed. And you can see it, it's, it's, it actually makes sense. The Romans would say we can be here. You know, we, today we'll say, I like, I'm interested in all the different religions. I've taken classes on religions. And I respect your religion. But the thing that people won't do today, the secular intellectuals won't do today, is they will not let one say, yours is the true faith. Yours is the real God. And here it makes sense. It makes sense that the Romans would spit upon and reject Jesus for the claim that he is the true God. But here's the thing that's incredible too. It isn't just the seculars. It is the people who are supposed to know God. The religious people do it too. And not just any religious people. The ones that know the Bible really well, they do it too. And this passage is not just talking that some bad people 2,000 years ago did something really bad to the one who is God, who is a good person, who is a, who is a holy man, and they mocked him. But this is a commentary on the human race. It is a commentary on all people at all places. It is a commentary on every class, on different secular types and on religion types. It is a very difficult commentary upon us. This is God saying, this is who you are. Now, years ago when I was in college, I was a member of, uh, of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And InterVarsity Christian Fellowship... I think they still do this. Uh, for years, they did something that they would call the inductive mark study. And this is what it is. What they would do is they would type out the entire gospel of Mark. So it's the shortest of the gospels. And they would have you, if you were like a member of the fellowship, to invite one of your non-Christian friends. And it's interesting because even if you were already a Christian, it was a, a, a very eye-opening thing to do. And in, the, in, the, in you, they would print out the whole Gospel of Mark, but they would take out all the verses, all the verse numbers. They would take out all the chapters so that it doesn't look like the Bible. It doesn't look like a religious book. They would, it just looks like a series of texts. And in this thing, they would ask you to read it. And then just read it like you would read any text. And then they would say, what do you see? Who is this person, Jesus and then they would just ask people to make observations about this person, this very person, Jesus, that they encounter in the shortest of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark, this inductive Bible study. And even people who grew up in the church would find some things that would be rather astonishing to them. The, the non-Christians would have all, these different, they have all these conceptions about Jesus, and they would find he's not quite what I thought he was. He's actually strange and offensive and wild, and he parties, and, and he does incredible things, right? And, but this thing, I, I sat through this when I was a freshman, and this, this uh, conclusion kept coming up, which was very interesting. We would go through chapter after chapter, although we didn't call them that, of course, because they weren't divided into chapters. And this conclusion kept coming up, which is that when people meet Jesus, they react. They react. There is like, <laughs> there's a serious reaction when people meet Jesus. And there's typically two reactions to Jesus in the Gospels. One is, they're in awe of him. Sometimes they're afraid of him. Sometimes they bow down to him. They chase him. They run after him. The crowds come up to him. He's like a rock star. In one, they're in awe of him. But there's another reaction. 
The other reaction is they hate him. The other reaction is hatred. If you read through the Gospels again and again, all four of the Gospels, you see this. It's, a, it's very consistent. But if you see this again and again and again, there is no neutral, there is no neutral response to Jesus Christ. <laughs> just, just even recently, um, I, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, uh, I, you know, there was a Tiger Woods, the world's most famous golfer, one of the, the most famous, the most recognized faces literally on the planet. He went through some marital problems, right? And he got humiliated in the press. It was interesting. The whole blogosphere was talking about Tiger Woods. But a very famous journalist named Britt Hume, who happens to be a Christian, by the way, and I didn't know that. I didn't know that Britt Hume was a Christian. He was a, in, a, in a forum, and they asked Britt Hume, you know, what do you think about Tiger Woods? And he said, you know, I think it would be helpful if Tiger considered Jesus. That's all he said. <laughs> he didn't write an article. He just said it in like a panel. It would be helpful if Tiger met Jesus and encountered grace. Right? And man, the blogosphere lit up. <laughs> and people got really angry. And after it was over, then people asked Britt Hume again about that. And he said, well, all these people are going to be telling him what to do. I thought it would be helpful if he knew that there was something called forgiveness that there was grace, and that's what you meet in Jesus. And he goes, and, but then he made a commentary. He goes, you know, no matter what, as soon as you just say the name Jesus Christ, <laughs> you will have a controversy. Things will blow up. He goes, it's just crazy. You just drop that name Jesus Christ in any conversation, and a thing just, boom, it just gets electric. Huh? He's still having that effect, but somehow he still has some other effects too. Notice there's no neutrality to Jesus. There is awe or there's hatred. But this commentary is saying, you know what's the default mode toward people when they meet God? Because this is it. They're seeing God in his face. The default mode is mockery. Now, I want to talk about in this first part of this message. First part of this message is how we mock Jesus, how people mock God. And I think there's two kind of broad, basic ways that we do it. First, and I've already kind of gotten at this, is one is we're just too sophisticated for him. We don't need him. You're a good person. I don't know why I need a savior. We know what I, I want. I want to go to church. I want some good advice. I want to meet some nice people, and I want some good morality. But you know what we don't want? Maybe we even want a good moral example. So many people like Jesus, the moral example. They like Jesus, the one who loves the poor. They like Jesus, a good religious teacher. But the one they don't want is Jesus, a savior. They do not want Jesus, a lamb of God. Jesus needing to shed his blood. That they don't want. We're just good people. <laughs> or how about we're just too smart? I've studied science. I know so much. I've gone to universities. We're sophisticated people. We're very sophisticated people. You know, people today, one of the reasons that people reject Jesus or they mock Jesus or they mock Christianity is because when they meet the Christians, the Christians don't seem like much. You know, you go into so many churches, they're small or they're poor or they're not well educated. I, I can't, you know, it's, it comes up so often when you read a secular analysis in the mainstream media and their description of Christians. And it's kind of like, 
it's almost like you just read the way they describe this thing, but, you know, you, they might as well just bluntly just say these are ignorant, hillbilly, stupid people who be- believe in a stupid God. That's what they Well, you might as well just say that. Just, just come out and just say it. But that's kind of the undertow in so much of the writing. There's a, this secular sophistication. We're just too sophisticated. Our wisdom is beyond the wisdom of the Bible. I'm a good person. I'm too... I'm a good person. Why do I need to be told this? And yet, and so, deep down, some people are a little nicer about it. Some people are blunt about it. I mean, if you listen to, like, someone really like Bill Maher, I mean, he is blunt. He is blunt about this. The, the new atheist crowd in, in this literature, they are blunt about these things. And then there's a whole lot of people that are a little softer about it, but they're just Jesus out of no. And if you go around and look at the Christians, though, all around the world, it is the norm of God to pick and call forth people who aren't quite so educated, who aren't so rich, who aren't so sophisticated. They don't live in the best houses. There are churches all around the world. There are smaller gatherings than this. There are just 10 people in somebody's house. There are a dozen people in a mud hut someplace. There are some people, they are literally hiding they're hiding. I don't know if you know this, and I'm, I'm so, so thankful that Doak prayed for the persecuted church today. There's this thing that's called the Arab Spring that's in the news. I don't know if you know the Arab Spring isn't so great for Christians. In Egypt, they're killing Christians. They're quite literally killing, killing Christians. In Iran, they are killing Christians. As now the, the more virulent and stronger forces, the more pious forces of, of Islam come into political power, they are much more offended. They're saying that they, the, the human rights, so to speak, they're supposed to be universal. Not all Muslims believe in those things. They are killing Christians around the world. And so the secular sophisticated people or the Muslim sophisticated, but there's lots of sophisticated people. They look at the Christians. They don't look like much. He's the God that they worship. There is a mockery, right? But let me talk about a second version of mockery, which is the way the religious people do it. And this passage has it, right? And this, maybe for many of you, will hit home a little more. The ones who go to church, the ones who grew up in church, you're like, come on, I, I don't mock Jesus. But the way we do it is a little more subtle, I think. Look, I told you that if you meet Jesus Christ, that there is two reactions, awe or mockery. There isn't a middle. Lukewarm is not one of the options in the Bible. Something in the middle is not, I'm okay with Jesus. I'm good with Jesus. I like Jesus. That's not one of the options. When people meet God, there is awe or there is mockery. And if you are in the lukewarm, apathetic, Jesus is okay, Jesus is nice, church is okay, right? I like it some, but not too much, right? That, and Jesus is somebody who's in your life, or I believe in him, and I'm glad he's my savior, but you know what? Maybe he's not a lord. Maybe he's not your king. Maybe he's not the one you attend to. He's not front and center. He's not the person that you care about. You know, you, you, you listen to your wife. You attend to your children. You know when your boss, what your boss wants from you. You care about that, you definitely you, you know you, you are attentive to the currents that's happening in your, in your company. You are attentive to the currents that are happening in your industry. 
But Jesus, like uh, the, the currents that's coming from Jesus is the Bible. The Bible is a religious book that I barely touch. Right? Prayer, eh, it's like a duty that I have to do. Fellowship, it's basically just hanging out with the people instead of religious people that I like. Look, fellowship is not hanging out. And the Bible is not a religious book. And prayer is not a religious duty. But if you are habitually in this mode, Jesus is in the down. He's not in the downtown. He's in the suburbs. For some of you, he's not even the suburbs. He's in the exurbs. Some of you, he's not even the exurbs. He's in the rural countryside. He's like way out there. You're in downtown. He's like way out there. He's like this little guy that you barely pay attention to, that you attend to through religion on Sunday. I'm telling you, it's a form of mockery of Jesus. This is God. He bled to pay for your sin. For him to be out there, to be religion, it's a form of mocking. I don't see how it could be anything less. If I treat my son as not my son, I'm like, I like my son, but I treat him more like he's my dog. I'm telling you, I'm mocking my son. I'm humiliating my son. This is what it's like. This is what we religious people, People do. This is how the Christians mock God. Right? Now, this is hard. Now, I just want to stop for a second. This is hard to hear, isn't it? I'm not doing this because I'm a tough guy that's got to like, just hammer down upon you. This is hard. This is hard for me, too. I don't want to preach this. I don't even want to hear this. I don't want to think this. I don't even want to think this. But this is what I believe the Bible is saying. This is what the Bible is saying. This is how say, this is who you are. This is what God is saying to us. That's the first part of the message. Well, let me talk about point number two. I'd like to ask you a question. This is the title, point number two, which is, how deep is your love? How deep is your love? And I'm not saying how deep is your love for God. Because <laughs> I think when you do that, People go, how deep is your love for God? You start thinking about your feelings. I'm going to like poke around in my feelings. I got deep feelings for God. Or like how often you've done your quiet times or how, how, how much you care about church. No, 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 no. That's all works righteousness orientating. You're trying to like work your feelings up to love God. That's not, that's not enough. Actually, the way the Bible says how we will know how deeply you love God, it's a very interesting Acid test. The Bible's acid test for how well people love God, how deeply people love God, is how deeply you love others. How deeply you love the people that God put in your life. That's an interesting acid test, isn't it? It's a very practical acid test. But let me just, I'm I'm not even asking you how deeply you love God. Let me just say, how deeply just do you love people? How deeply do you love others? But it's helpful, you know. Usually, if you're going to love God, God will send somebody into your life who's hard. (laughs) Who's hard to love. Who's a little unlovable. Maybe a lot unlovable. Maybe who is just quite hateful. And this is not a person you want around. This is a person that you would want to have zero minutes in your life, let alone five or ten or an hour. But God tends to do that. He tends to float these people into your life and then says, hey, you know, I want you to love this person. It's a pretty strong acid test of how much you will love God when you love certain people. But you notice, let me ask you this. When somebody that you're supposed to love responds, well, 
You show them a kindness. You have good intentions. You do something good for this person. And this person, ooh, they, they take it. They take it in a good way. They smile. They say thank you. They show you appreciation. They respond back with you with kindness and, 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 a, and a reciprocal form of love. That, those, people, those people, they're easy to love, aren't they? You, got, you have any of those people? I hope you have some people like that in your life. They're easy to love, aren't they? But what if you have someone in your life, you pour something into their heart, and they just give you a whole lot of, boom, apathy. A whole lot of lukewarm. Or they just give you the hand (laughs) to the face. Or even worse, you give them goodness, they spit back at you. you. You offer them kindness, they hurt you. What about that? What, how far can you go to love this person? How much do you love this person? You know, there's probably people in your life that they don't think you love them very much. You just probably think in your life, you don't, you, you don't think they love you very much. You're like, they came around once, they came around twice, and then that's it. They don't love me very much. But you know what? They probably think that about you too. You only tried once. You only tried twice, and then that was it, right? You know, we're all like that. Aren't most of you? You meet a person. If they're not very responsive to the love you offer them, once, that's like once, okay, one strike, you're out. That's it. I ain't trying anymore. Some of us, that's it. Once is enough. That's it. Some of us are a little more holy than that. You're a little holier than that. You're deeper than that. Twice, you give a person at least three or four strikes three or four times to be apathetic or to hard. And then, and you're like, all right, that's it. It's not worth it anymore, <laughs> right? Or forget it, or screw you, or I don't need to deal with this crap. What the heck, right? Maybe you don't say that out loud because you're too polite, but you say it in your head or say harsher words in your head. I do, <laughs> right? Um, but this happens. But do you understand what the Bible is saying to you? This is God. And God says, we mock him. And then you know what he does? He keeps coming. And he comes. And he comes. And he comes. You know that if you have somebody in your life who's really painful to love, if you had to keep loving this person, you would say, I can't do this. Why? Because I would literally feel like inside I am dying. I would feel like I have to die inside in order to keep serving and doing good to this person if I have to do this. And you know what? It's probably true. Inside, you actually feel like this person is killing you. right? But you know what this passage is saying? We are killing God. And you know what he does? He says, I will go and I will die. I'll go all the way and I will die to get you, to reach you, to love you. You know, if you really want a deep love for somebody else, you know what you really need? You need a deep love for you. People who haven't been deeply loved, they usually are not very good at loving others. This is the deepest love there is. Mark chapter 15. The one who will love you to death. (laughs) That is God. Jesus Christ. I'd like to close my message with um, three short stories. 
And I'll entitle this, these little shorts, the, the subtitle, for those of you who like outlines and take notes, I don't know how many of you that is, all right, will be the never-ending awe of knowing the love of Jesus Christ. The never-ending awe of knowing the love of Jesus Christ. First, quick short story. There, one of my dear friends, and maybe some of you have heard me talk about him sometimes, is a guy named Kenny Ye. Kenny's a couple years older than me, and he was a pastor. About, about a year and a half ago, Kenny died in, um, in a tragic bus accident while he was on his way to a mission strip. That news was, I mean, it just cut me. Kenny's one of my closest friends. Kenny is a pastor that when I have hard things in ministry to talk about, Kenny is one of, I mean, he's right there at the top of the list of the guys that I talk with about Jesus, the gospel, and what it means to follow him, right? Kenny's a deep guy. Um, but I just want to share this thing that he shared when we were young. He gave a sermon when he was probably about 27, and I was, I was quite young at the time. I was probably about 24, right? And in this sermon, he was talking about what it's like to know God what it's like to have an ongoing relationship with Jesus. You know, Kenny was single, and he was sharing this to a room full of single people. I mean, almost everybody in the room was single. And, you know, he's kind of like ringing our bells. He's like saying, let's say one day you meet the person who's the love of your life. (laughs) This is the person that just loves you more than any other person. And this is a person whose love just works for you, and you are in love with this person. You fall in love with this person. And when you meet this person, and you're with this person, this thought comes to you, which is, man, it's so good when I'm with you. I just wish I met you sooner. I wish I married you earlier. I met you before. That's what he said. And when he says, actually, you know, following Jesus is like that. That if you know Jesus, if you really have met Jesus, what you have is, you'll have this moment, and it'll keep recurring. And you'll just say, I wish I followed Jesus before. Maybe some of you met him when you were 15. You gave your life to him at some retreat or at church. Maybe some of you met him five years ago. Maybe some of you have been a Christian but doing this religious thing your whole life. But you haven't really quite encountered him. But if you really know and met this person who really loves you, you have this thing you keep saying, I wish I met him before. And I remember listening to Kenny say that, and I was like, wow, that's incredible. I was a young man then. I was like 24, and I walked with Jesus you know, I have mocked Jesus many times. I have mocked him many times. I have made little of Jesus in my life. And I keep coming back, and what I keep finding is what Kenny says is true. You keep thinking, you're still here, Jesus. I wish I met you and walked with you and really knew you like this before. Man, it is Kenny. Story number two. 
years ago, when we were, when my wife and I, this is before we were married, when we were in Boston, we knew a woman in the church. Um, she was very accomplished. She was very smart. Right? She came out of an Ivy League university. So, and, and I won't say the school. If I say the name of the school, you'll instantly recognize it. It's one of the most famous schools in the world. Okay? She came out of an Ivy League university. She, um, when we met her, she was doing a PhD. She was in graduate school at one of the top schools, and it's in Boston, and I won't say what school. There's a couple of top, top schools in the city of Boston, and she was in a, a graduate program in one of those, in one of those schools. And she was in the sciences. She was very smart. She was very uh, competent. And she always considered herself a competent person. I've got my act together. I can do this. I've got my life together. And she was, had just started coming to church, and she was relatively new to church. She had just married a man who had grown up in a devout Christian family, although he himself had his own issues with Jesus, and he had his own issues of, about Christianity, but as they had gotten married, they had decided that they wanted to know God and they needed to have God in their lives. So this is like, we're going into this really important relationship. We should probably have a, a, an even more important relationship with God worked out. So they started coming to church. And she admitted, she would say to you, she was like, oh, man. And she would laugh. She would actually laugh and say, if my friends could see me now, they would be shocked. They would never, she would say, they would never think that I would go to church. And if you had met me in college, I would have said, I'm never going to go to church. You know, Jesus is for weak people. He's not, I don't need him. And she would say that bluntly. And she came to our church and she was, you know, listening and processing the gospel and trying to figure out what is this Jesus business. But in the middle of her doctoral program, she started having problems and difficulty in her, in her lab work. And all her competence started to crumble and break down. And she started to crumble. She started to get depressed. And she was in our, our community group, our small group, and, and her husband would ask us, I, I see signs of depression. She doesn't want to get out of bed. Will you please, please pray for her? And we did. Right? And she was processing about Jesus during this period of her life. And it was during this period when she was broken down that she met the God who was mocked, who was broken on the cross, and she began to really see Jesus and see her need for him. And the following year, she got baptized. She accepted Christ. She got baptized. And you know, she wrote out this testimony and at that time, I, 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 I had moved back to the West Coast. Um, but I remember reading that testimony, and it made me weep. Incredible. She met Jesus. Third and last story. Recently, as a pastor, you know, when you're a pastor, um, every now and then somebody gives you a, you know, a buzz and they want to talk to you about something interesting, Right? And lately, I have been talking to people who have been having troubles in their marriage, right? Multiple people, multiple couples have been talking to me about troubles in their marriage. And now maybe, I don't know if this is some special thing God is doing, maybe this is just par for the course. When you live in a culture that doesn't know how to do marriage, it's just bound to be people are coming up telling you, 
oh, man, we're in trouble. We're dysfunctional. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you guys are in trouble, right? And you hear people talking to you about these things. But in listening to people tell their stories to me and sharing with them about how Jesus is who they need, it really started to take me back, right? And now, so about, I've been married a little more than 14 years. And at about the halfway point of our marriage, we started having problems, like big problems. Problems that we could not resolve. Things that we could, we could not, you know, I mean, if you're a couple out there and you have fights and you go round and around and there's no resolution and there's no prog- progress, that's bad. Let me just tell you something. That's bad. That's a bad sign, right? And usually if you do that for enough years, your marriage, the, the machine will break down. And we were there. And so, you know, it's the seventh year. I still remember this, you know, that you have this thing called the seven-year itch and people say they cheat and their marriages break down roughly in seven years and something like that. I remember actually reading literature and doing this and counting this up. I'm like, we're seven years into this thing. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I am average. I always thought I was above average. <laughs> Everybody think they're above average? I'm, I'm never going to get divorced. <laughs> All these other people get divorced. All these other people have problems. I'm above average. Everybody thinks they're an above average driver. Everybody thinks they're an above average cook. But sometimes you go to the house and you eat their food and you're like, they're not. <laughs> okay? And everybody thinks they're an above average husband or wife. And it was, man, it was hard to just read and just count it up going, I'm so average. We're right there in the smack of the middle of the bell curve of dysfunctionality. Great. You know, I had to be taken into marital counseling, kicking and dragging. We had this fight one, this once, and Grace said, let's get counseling. And I said, okay, I'll think about it. You know how long I thought about it? A year. <laughs> I thought about it a year because my thoughts were around something like this. Uh, I don't feel like it. That'd be a hassle. That costs money. We'd have to get babysitters. It would just generally suck. I'd have to talk to some sensitive guy. Forget it. <laughs> it always ran down to something like that, even though I felt like we probably needed it. Right? But I didn't want to do it. And there's also some shame. Just plain shame. I didn't want to admit I need that kind of help. Then about a year later, we're still cycling around. We had this fight. Man, it was so painful. Like, you just... Somehow, the pain point just needs to hit a certain point before you finally get smart enough to go get open-heart surgery. You know, you don't get surgery until you're, like, you're finally dying. Well, we had this fight, and it was a really painful fight. And I remember this grace is screaming at me. I said, okay. I said, and that really finally did it. I said, okay. Okay, we can get marital counseling. Now, this is how bad I was. She said... She went first and without me. <laughs> she went. She goes, if, if you don't think, you're not going to go and you don't think you need it, I need it, so I'm going to go. So she went. <laughs> she came back after that first session and I said, how'd it go? She goes, he wants you there. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, all right. <laughs> so I went to the second session. Right? Now here's what I was trying to do. The whole time we would have problems. You know what I was trying to do? Now look, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian. I accepted Jesus when I was 11 years old. Okay, I've been a Christian a long time. I'm an ordained pastor. 
I'm in a PhD program in systematic theology. That means I know the Bible. I really know the Bible, okay? I mean, I am a professional Christian. <laughs> I'm not just a Christian. I'm like a professional with, an, with like an advanced like extra steps, okay? And so I'm supposed to know, here's what I'm doing. So I belong, I read this thing. The chief priests are mocking Jesus. I'm like, I, I, I get it. Like, I'm there. I'm one of like the higher rank guys. And I went into this marital counseling. And here's the whole shebang. Our counselor, his name is Bob. This is what he said. He said, okay, Susan, Grace, the Holy Spirit's going to be in Grace. And the Holy Spirit's going to be in you. And God is going to work in you. And God is going to work in Grace. And he's going to change this marriage. And he's going to make this marriage sing. And I remember sitting there and having this kind of like holy crap moment. Right? It was like, wow, that's how it really works, isn't it? <laughs> right? That's how it actually works. There's like God. He's a real person. <laughs> he's not like the sum total of doctrines. He's not like a religion. Jesus is the stuff that's in a religious book, the sum total of our doctrines. And we manage him. He's this nice guy that he's in the back of our life and we just leave him alone and we come and be nice Christians and do our religion every Sunday and become we put on our good face in front of everybody. But actually, really, he's a real person. And he keeps coming around even though you spit on him, even though you make so little of him. He keeps coming back. And when he said this, when Bob said this thing, I just... It, it, was a, it was like the scales fell off my eyes because this is what I was doing. This time, for like the last couple of years, every time Grace would raise an issue with me, you know what? I would just go, of course I'm a sinner because that's good doctrine, but really, let's get her fixed. That was my attitude. And when I walked into that marital counseling, I'm thinking, like, this will be good because like, hopefully it'll get her fixed. I'll, I'll fix a couple of my minor issues, and, but we'll get her fixed. But when... Bob said the Holy Spirit would be in me, that Jesus would send his spirit, and then he'll be in grace, and he will change and work on grace, because God's going to do it. It was like, wow, that's the real thing. That's the way it really works. And I had this repentance in that session, right? Look, all of life is repentance. That's what... Luther says. Some of you, when you think of repentance, you're like, okay, I looked at porn like six months ago, or like I cheated on my taxes, or I screamed at my kid, or I swore at the guy who cut, across, uh, cut me off while I, was, uh, while I was going to work. You're like, I'll repent of those things. That's, that's, that's not repentance. I mean, that's nice. Those are all things, and you should repent of all those things. But you know what repentance is? It's when you let Jesus be front and center. It's the whole of your life, the whole tenor of your life. The whole default of your life is for you to get into the self-lordship, the self-salvation project. You stick yourself in that driver's seat and you make good and big of everything that's important to you. Your wisdom, your righteousness, your control, your lordship, you in the driver's seat. You know what you really need to repent of? This. Jesus, front and center. Jesus. Meet Jesus. Let Jesus love you. Let Jesus love you. That's what you need to repent of. Let him be the real person that you meet. 
That's what real repentance is. And I had it in that marital counseling session. And it changed everything. It changed everything. Like for me, it's like I think of our marriage. It was 14 years, seven years of kind of like mediocre to bad, and seven years of good and getting better and better and better. I can honestly say to you, I always wish that I had gone to the marital counseling sooner so that I could really love and be loved by grace sooner. And it's all the more true of Jesus that you would follow him and meet him sooner. Let Jesus love you. Let Jesus love you. Let's pray. Lord, um, we're so dense. We're so prideful. We're so foolish. Will you reset the default of our heart? You come into our life. Will you be in the downtown of our life? Forgive us for mocking you. Forgive us for spitting on your goodness. Forgive us for making so little of the most important thing that anybody could ever do for us, which is redeem us, atone for us, and so you could love us, forgive us for making so little of you and your love for us. I pray that every person here who hears this message would see you, Jesus, front and center, and would run to you and go to you And let the ocean of your love wash over them. No matter how many countless number of times they have rejected you or spat upon you or made little of you or turned you into the peace of religion and not the everlasting Lord, the great Redeemer, the ocean who is the love of the powerful love of God himself, the expression of the intense unstoppable love who will go to death for us. Forgive us, Jesus. Take us to yourself. Make us new. Pray in Jesus' name.